Thanks, Marky. And um, hello. Um, right. So, um, the first thing I want us to do today is I've put the question on the screen. And I just want us to have 30 seconds to think about that on our own just for a moment. It says, how does God see me? And you don't need to talk, it's just a time to reflect for yourself. How does God see me? How does God see other people around me? I'm just going to give you about 30 seconds to think about that. So you might have thought of different things. You might have thought of the word loved, forgiven, restored. And those would be really good words to think about how God sees me. And that's a very personal thing to think about. But I suppose if I opened it up a little bit more and I said, well, how does God see everybody else? And do we see each other in the way that God sees us? Do we see each other? Is this, is this sound a bit weird? Am I doing something? I don't know. Can I do anything? No? Okay. I'll just talk louder. Um, so, if, um, if we could see each other the way that God saw us, would it change? Would it change the way that we work with each other? Would it change the way that we talk to each other? Would it change the way that we interact with each other on a Sunday morning or in our workplaces? Would church be different if we saw each other exactly as God sees us? And you might think, where am I going? And why did I make um, John T. read those that long list of names at the start today? And it's because when I was thinking about what to preach about today, and when Marky said, you know, obviously we're following the Restore series and we're looking at Matthew chapters 1 to 6 this week, um, I was struck by the fact that the day that Matthew chapter 1 was read, was going to be read, was also International Women's Day. And it struck me that actually... That's quite important. And I think because of my job, I'd spent a lot of time at school thinking about International Women's Day and what that might mean. And in Matthew chapter 1, a few women mentioned, and those of you that are following Restore and the YouTube clips every day will know that Dave mentioned that in his talk on International Women's Day. And he talked about the women that were mentioned. And listen to what Dave said was interesting. I think he describes these women as having a questionable past. A questionable past. I don't know. I struggled a little bit with that as a statement because I think they were women and had a really, really tough time. And actually, what I want to do today is actually talk about their story and what we can learn from the story as humans, as people living in the world today and as Christians living in the world today. And if you look at these five women um, in the story, in the five women that I mentioned, it talks about the fact that actually... I mean, Dave talked about the fact that actually it's because they were Jews. They weren't Jews, sorry. And actually, it was about the kingdom story and about the fact that Jesus... These women that were mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, and a lot of people say, well, they're mentioned because they weren't Jews. And actually, this tells us that Jesus came for people other than Jews. It's about the fact that they were, as Dave described, they have a questionable past, and actually Jesus came for everybody. But I, I want to take it a step further today, really, and really think about it in the concept of... These people as women who, who actually have a real powerful story to tell, a story that perhaps that we, we need to be listening to today as, as, as people, as Christians in our world. And actually, what is God saying to us about women in society and what can we do to make the world a fairer place? And the reason I'm thinking about that is because obviously it was International 
Women's Day. And, and I was having a chat with a few people actually a few weeks ago. And I was talking about the fact that in my school, we have, a, we have lots of clubs and societies that take place at lunchtime. And Feminist Society is a club that was started, I think, well back in September. And it's one of our most well-attended clubs that happens at lunchtime. In our school. So the young people today are talking about this. This is very much on the agenda for people today. And it's, you hear a lot about it in the media. Um, and actually, something that's really interesting, there's a lot of stuff around the B2 and all of that sort of stuff. And actually, it's really, really important to sometimes take a moment and think, actually, what is affecting the world around us right now? What is affecting people today? And what, what's our response as Christians to that? Where, where do we stand, actually, on this? And it's a difficult thing to talk about. And I know that when I was thinking about talking about this today, I was quite worried because it's, it's quite a difficult conversation to have. But I, I, want to, I want to go there, so please work with me as we go there today. We'll see, see what happens. Because women aren't mentioned as much in the Bible as men. They're just, they don't feature as well as men in the Bible. If you count up how many men are mentioned in the Bible and how many women are mentioned in the Bible, men are mentioned a lot more. And... And that doesn't mean that those women weren't there. That doesn't mean that they didn't have a story to tell. And what I think is really powerful about this chapter today that John T. read so beautifully was these women are mentioned. And the women that are mentioned are not the women that you would think. If you think about the genealogy of Jesus, you think about the story. People that should be mentioned are people like Sarah, like Abraham and Sarah. Why is Sarah not mentioned? People like Rebecca. You know, why, why is Rebecca not mentioned? Why are these four women mentioned? And that struck me because I thought, actually, these have not got the best stories. They haven't got the happy endings. They haven't got the stories perhaps in the way that we'd like to think about. And actually, that's what challenged me. And that's why I'm here today, really. And the, the top I've written, hashtag break the bias, because that is the International Women's Day um, phrase this year. And we've been talking about it at work quite a lot. And I think that Jesus broke that bias. The way that Jesus lived broke that bias. He challenged the inequality that women faced. He challenged the way that women were treated in his actions and in his words. And I want to look at these four women and actually let's see what we can learn today as, as Christians living in 2022 about the inequalities that we see around us today. And how does God want us to be agents of change, to make the world a better place and make it more equal. And actually, what is God's to us? Because you might sit there thinking, actually, do you know what? There are lots of things at the moment that I feel are unequal in my own life. And actually, what is God saying to you? What is God saying to me about those things? And we're just going to talk about these four women and see what we can learn from their story and hopefully challenge ourselves a little along the way. So, the first woman is a woman called Tamar. And those of you that are doing Restore 2020 will have read her story in January, when we read through Genesis. And her story is quite interesting, because she was the daughter-in-law of Judah, so she's married to one of his sons, and she doesn't have any children, and her, and her husband dies. So Judah does what he's supposed to do at that time, which is he says, okay, because as a woman in those days, she had no rights, she had no power, she was completely powerless, unless she was married and she had sons. They were the people that were going to look after her when she was old. And she had no children. So she was widowed and she had no children. So Judah does the right thing and he says, right, here's my next son. You can marry my next son and hopefully have children in that way. But that son dies as well. Judah has one more son and doesn't want to allow Tamar to marry his third son. Maybe he was worried. Maybe he was concerned that his third son was going to die. 
I get that. But actually, for this woman, she had no power. She was completely powerless. She was in a very, very difficult, desperate situation. And what she does on the surface looks awful, actually. When you read the story, you think, gosh, she dresses herself up as a temple prostitute and basically seduces her father-in-law and through that has twins. And when she seduces her father, she takes some of his property, which is effectively the equivalent of a DNA test, isn't it? By taking those items, she was saying, when I'm pregnant, I'll be able to prove who the father of my child is. And that was her way of doing that, which is actually incredibly clever for a woman that was completely desperate and completely powerless. And I'm not saying that what she did was perfect. I think it's very hard to say that. But in the story, when eventually she has the twins, Judah, who was the person that, that slept with her, says she's more righteous than I. He says she's more righteous than I. Those are quite powerful words, because what do they mean? What was he saying by she's more righteous than I? Her powerlessness was transformed into being more right than man. And in those days, that was big. To say she's more righteous than I and talk about a woman was big news, big news. She's more right than a man. He was effectively saying, she is more superior, she's better than me in this situation. So right, being right in that situation brought equality for this woman, for this woman Tamar, who had had such a difficult time. She was completely powerless, but by just knowing that what she was doing was the right thing, she was able to turn that around. She showed bravery, she took risks because she was desperate. And by following God's plan, she knew that she was doing the right thing. And she took that risk. And that situation turned from powerlessness to equality. And that's quite powerful. That's quite an interesting story. And I suppose if we take a moment now, actually, I sit here thinking, do you know what? That has nothing to do with me. Really, are there situations in your life where perhaps you feel powerless or you have felt powerless or desperate? The kingdom of God is full of people who are powerless. We sang earlier about the weak being made strong. There might be situations in your life today where you feel weak and you feel powerless. But what Jesus did when he came to earth, what Jesus did at the start of Matthew chapter 1, the story of the kingdom of God is about weak people being strong. It's about the powerless being brought up to a place of equality. When we think about communion, and we're going to come in communion later on, that is the place of equality. That's the place where the weak are missed. When we take communion today, what Jesus is saying to us is, what? Through me, you have been made strong. Wherever you feel weak in your life, you have been made strong. And you're in here thinking, you know, I feel powerless. I feel quite strong. And if that's you, then maybe you need to be the voice of the feel equal at the moment. It doesn't feel empowered that is powerless. And that might be someone that you know, somebody that you work with, somebody in this room, somebody on the other side of the world. But actually, do we need to be a voice for equality for those that are powerless at the moment? Do we need to stand up and say, actually, no, we need to show that these people are more righteous than we are. Let's make them as equal as we are. So that's the first one, and we'll come back to her a little bit later at the end. The next story is the story of Rahab. Now, Rahab, and a little bit later on, um, we haven't quite got to that through his story at the moment, but, but Rahab um, hid some spies. So they were, the Israelites were spying at Jericho, and they were going to take over the city. And two spies, 
into the city and she hid them in her home. And she hid them in her home even when the officials of Jericho came to her and said, have you got these spies? And she said, no. And in the picture, she hides them so they can escape. And then she helps them to escape. The question is why? Why did she do that? Why did this woman do this? Why did she help these women escape? These men escape, sorry. And I'm going to read you the passage of, of what happened. It's Joshua chapter 2, 8 to 11. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. And then she goes on to say, please help me and my family when you do come over and take over this city. And the reason I've put the word shameful past up there is because when you read that story, it's mentioned on more than one occasion that this woman, Rahab, was a prostitute. She was a, um, she was a lady of the night. Whatever word you want to use to describe what she was, there are better words that are used to describe that today. And, and what I think is really interesting in the story is that despite that, God still used her. Despite that, God used her. Despite the fact that her own people in her own city would have despised her and rejected her. Despite the fact that the people that the Israelites would have rejected her, God used her. And that also saved her life as a result of what she did, the risk she took. So again, she took a really big risk. And she took that risk because she saw that God was God. She took that moment to recognize that God was God. And if you think about it, the story goes on. What happens is that she says, she says, when you come and destroy the city, I want you to be saved my family. I want you to save my family. And they ask her to hang a scarlet cord out from her wall. From the wall. And, then, and what happens is her family is saved. And I think there's something quite powerful about of that scarlet cord and the fact that actually her, her past, yes, it was shameful. God still used her. By hanging that scarlet cord, she family were saved. And I think the scarlet cord speaks quite clearly of Jesus and actually his blood and the fact that through him we can have redemption. We can have redemption from whatever our past is or was. And that could be recent past, that could be historical past, but we can have redemption through the blood of Jesus and through the story of Jesus. You see, with, with Jesus, nothing is too shameful. Whatever I've done, whatever you've done, nothing is too shameful. He already knows anyway. And I often think of the analogy, when we think of things that we've done that are really wrong, he knows anyway. And I think of, like, at school for all my own children, sometimes they'll come and tell you they've done something really wrong. And they're so scared because they think that you're going to be really cross with them. And sometimes you tell them off, but... Sorry, there's no children. There are a few children. Um, sometimes you tell them off, but inside it's actually a little bit funny. Have you ever been in that situation where they've done something and you think... I've got to tell them off, but really, I kind of, the children, you know, they've done what children do. And I think God sees us like that. I think we do things really wrong, and we're so ashamed by what we've done. But Father God doesn't see us in that way. He looks at us and he says, do you know what, I love anyone. Does it matter what you've done? Does it matter how bad you feel? Actually, I love you. And with the story of Rahab, by handing that call, she was basically saying, I want to be 
part of this fabulous journey. I want this, and I want to in this situation. But nothing is too shameful. Nothing is too shameful. And when we take communion later today, that redemption again brings us equality. It brings us equality. Sit at Jesus' feet or sit with each other. It's better than anybody else. Nobody in this room has got we're all the same. And God sees us in that. That's how God sees us. We are all people. And if you're sitting here thinking, oh, you know what, I'm right. I've not had, I'm nothing to be ashamed of. I'm happy and it's all good. That's great. Actually, support somebody that is feeling that shame. Seeing each other is God sees us. The 125 charity, which was literally this week, the perfect example of that, about people who have got described as a shameful story. There's a lot we can do to help people like that in those situations. Like to come up who are feeling or sensing shame. In room today, if we know that somebody is ashamed, let's go up to them. But I you know what? Jesus, any difference? Let's respect that. And on to the next one. This is Ruth. So Ruth is the um, and Ruth is the interesting story because when you beautiful, it's like this wonderful story of relationship from, from Ruth. But actually, Ruth was widowed and she had the option to turn back. She was a Moabite, the Israelites, as, as it were. And she had the option to return. She chooses to follow Naomi. And there's a very, very famous passage which is often read at weddings, interestingly. Um, it says this. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Or deal with me, be it ever so severely, death separates you and me. And a beautiful passage that you may have heard at weddings or you may have heard in other contexts. I find it quite at weddings because she's saying it to her mother-in-law. I'm not quite sure at your wedding you'd be saying that. You might, might be saying that to your mother-in-law at your wedding. Um, but I find that quite amusing. Um, but it's a beautiful passage. But again, what she's doing is she's recognizing that God, that Jehovah God is the God that she wants to follow. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And then she sets off with Ruth and she goes back to Bethlehem. She goes back to Bethlehem. And it's a beautiful story. But one part when I read that story is missing because she was a Moabite. When she went back, to Bethlehem, looked a bit different, behaved a bit differently, very different cultural customs to the Israelites, the people that were living there. Would have faced a lot of prejudice being different. And what she does is, because she's accepted that this God is going to be my God, she just carries on and she puts one foot in front of the other and she to change that prejudice. And she works very hard, doesn't she? And she gleans in the fields and she. She kind of gets to know Boaz, and Boaz does the right thing, and they end up getting married, and eventually she's brought into a relationship. And again, she takes big risks as somebody who is from a different culture and a different background, and she faces a lot of prejudice. And I think the third type of equality that we need to see in our world is actually prejudice. I know personally, as a, as a woman, of a woman who's not, not what, what prejudice feels like. You know, I can give you so many examples where I face that personally. And I'm sure there are plenty of people that could do the same in other situations where you face prejudice because of your race, because of your, because of your age. 
And there's also hidden prejudice that, that perhaps we don't talk about as much. For example, mental health. You know, is it okay to be a Christian and be depressed? Is it okay to talk about that? I don't know. I mean, actually, you know, actually, mental health is a big issue at the moment, and a lot of people are facing that. And actually, what prejudice do people face if they're going through those things at the moment? What about disability? What about all of the other things that we, the, the, the prejudices that people are facing around us all the time? But what Ruth shows us is that she put first in this situation. She said, your God will be my God. And as a result of that, it empowered her to make choices that were going to change history. And Jesus did the same. When Jesus was alive, when he was going through his ministry, and as Matthew 1 so happened with these four women, he did that. He challenged prejudice on so many occasions. There's so many times when there were, whether it be a woman or a man, and he would challenge the prejudice, and he would say, actually, no, I'm going to talk to this person. I'm going to spend some time with this person. I'm not going to do what's the normal, what's expected in this situation. I'm going to challenge that. So today, are you, are you facing prejudice? Are there areas in your life where you think, actually, do you know what? I struggle with that. I struggle with the fact that when I walk into a room, I know that people think this about me. But again, that's the beauty of the communion table. That's the beauty of coming to Jesus. That actually what he says is, with me, you are you. And I love you as you are. And you can come to this table with equality, with everybody around you. Don't look at you and see that you're a woman or see that you were not born in this country, or see that you are, you, you're, you know, you, you find it hard to read, or, or whatever it may be. I see you as you are. I see you exactly as you are, and you are still equal. I still welcome you at this table with that equality. And if someone's sitting here today and thinking, actually, do you know what? No, I'm, I don't face those prejudices. I'm all right. Think about the people around you, because there'll be loads of people around you that need you. To be their voice. They need you to go alongside them and say, I see you the way that God sees you. And I welcome you the way that God sees you. And I'm willing to have my own prejudice aside to welcome you and see you the way that God sees you. And finally, the last one is um, Bathsheba. And what I think is interesting about Bathsheba is even in this passage, in she's called Bathsheba, she's called Uriah's wife. Because actually, that's who she was. She was Uriah's wife. She was Somebody who went through the most, one of the most horrific stories, I think there are, in the Old Testament, I think, for this woman, what she went through. Am I doing a sound change? Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Am I waiting for your applause? Sorry. Is that better? Oh, look at that. You can hear me now. You've been nodding all this time. No one's going to hear anything I've said. <laughs> um, okay, anyway. Oh, is that weird as well? That sounds weird. Is that all right? Okay. Um, so bringing us on to Bathsheba. So... Or Bathsheba, if you're posh, maybe, I don't know. Um, <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm from Birmingham, it's all right, she's Bathsheba to me. Um, so she, Bathsheba is an interesting one, because her story is so sad. And when you read the story of Bathsheba, it, it, I find it quite distressing, actually, because the story focuses very much on David, and David and what David has done and his sin. And that is really, really, and he is, he is because of what he does. He does. But this woman is abused and widowed and her child dies and it's truly horrendous because David who is the king uses his power for his own advantage to take advantage of a woman and that still happens doesn't it happens today I mean you you can read the news I don't want to talk about that right now but you could it's very current you know actually 
This is happening today. Women are being taken advantage of by men because men have that power. And, that, and that's something that I found really hard to, to read, hard to read, actually, because what are we doing about that as a society? What are we doing to change that? And actually, in this story, it, this is probably the hardest one for me when I was preparing this today because it's not as straightforward. She really goes through a tough time. And yes, in the end, baby Solomon is born, which is great, obviously great for me, baby Solomon is born. Um, but, but it's also just really painful. The pain that she experiences must have been horrendous, literally horrendous. And, it's, and actually, I think the Bible gets it because it devotes quite a lot of time to it, actually, in terms of a story. And the story of David's repentance, is, it devotes a lot of time to that as well because it really was horrendous. What, what she went through was truly horrendous. And, it, and it's really hard because there are people today going through things like that. There are people today that have suffered in that way, who've suffered abuse in that way, who've been through really difficult times. So how did she come out of this? What can we learn from her story? Well, what happens is, if you, if you read the story, and again, when we come on to reading it, I'm sure we will, but I just want to read to you a little bit from 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 15, and this is a lot later, a lot later after all of this has happened and Solomon has grown up and... And King David is now very, very old, and he's about to die. And what happens is that David says, I am going to be, um, basically the next king is being being lined up. And what happens is somebody else decides they're going to be king. Somebody called Adonijah says, I'm going to be king. And this really upsets Bathsheba because she thinks Solomon should be king. And the prophet Nathan reappears, who appeared earlier on, to help with David understanding his sin and all the things that he'd done wrong. And sort of gives her a bit of advice and says, you need to go and talk to David. And she takes a really big risk. And I'm very quickly going to read to you what what happens. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want? The king asked. She said to him, my Lord, you yourself swore to me by your, me, your servant, by the Lord your God, Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my Lord, the king, do not know about it. And then she goes on and on to describe what happens. And then Nathan the prophet comes in as well and sort of backs the story up. And as a result of that, Solomon then does become king. It's not straightforward, but that is what happens. So she seeks restoration through her pain. And actually, Jesus and the story of Jesus is all about that. It's all about restoration through pain. Whatever the suffering that she went through, the pain that she went through, she was able to get restoration in the end. And this is the hardest one, really, because I think pain it can be so deep and it can be so hard. But God wants to bring restoration, whatever your pain, whatever you've been through, <coughs> and it takes time. This happened a lot later for her to go back to the king and to get the restoration that she wanted. Because healing takes time. I once read a book and it said that um, it described a chessboard. And actually, on a, in a chess match or in a chess game, the pawn is the weakest of all the pieces on a chessboard. In some ways, you may, I'm, I'm no chess expert, maybe someone will disagree with me. But I think the pawn is one of the weakest pieces on a chessboard. And actually, the one that's most easy to be sacrificed to perhaps go through the most pain. But actually, if the pawn is able, one step at a time... To get to the other end of the board, what, what happens to it? Who plays chess? It, come, it gets promoted, it becomes a queen. It can do whatever it likes. And I think that's a good analogy of pain. A good analogy of pain. And actually, sometimes pain is hard and pain is difficult. But actually going one step at a time can bring restoration. And I think that's the beauty of Jesus' story. Because what Jesus did through the cross and through this communion table was what he said is, come to me. Every week, one step at a time, come and take communion. Take time to think 
about what I did for you. Take time to realize that you are righteous, that you are redeemed, that you can have a relationship with me and that you can be restored. And every time you do that, you come one step closer to dealing with the pain and your past and what you've been through and your prejudice and whatever it may be that you've been through. And that's the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of his story. And I think that's why Matthew chapter one includes these four women. Because what I think Jesus was saying is, I am all about equality. I'm all about making this world a fairer place. And you, as my disciples, have a job to do. You've got a job to make this world a fairer place because it's not going to happen by itself because humans naturally will want to be in power. And that will continue for centuries. But actually, you, as my disciples, have a job to do. And that job is to make this world a fairer place and to bring that equality. And if you're struggling, that's okay. That's what my table is for. Come to my table and let me help you see that you are all equal. So how does God see me? How does God see you? How does God see each one of us? He sees us as people who are forgiven, who are righteous, who are redeemed, who are restored, and who can have a relationship. And he sees us all as equal.